with that, let's pray. And we will look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Father, we do thank you for this time that we have to, to gather, to, to worship you, um, to fellowship with one another. Um, Lord, we ask that all that we do this day would be pleasing to you. And Lord, as we turn to this section, the small portion of our days, uh, some 45 minutes or so where we um, examine the scriptures, Lord, we ask that your spirit would lead us, that he would guide us, that he would um, enable us to, to see that which you have revealed to us, Lord. Uh, we ask that you give us understanding, um, not just in a, a cognitive sense, but in a life-transforming sense, that we would um, understand the text correctly as it was presented and preserved for us, um, but Lord, that it would make the the transition 18 inches from our mind to our hearts and that we would uh, encounter the King. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would help us to encounter Jesus in a way that is so powerful that he disrupts all of our lives and that we would uh, truly um, give ourselves to him. Lord, we are grateful for the grace that you've bestowed on us. We thank you that you are a benevolent God, and, and um, Lord, we're just we're thankful for this, this church family that you've provided for us. We ask that you would help us to grow into your likeness, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verse uh, 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would guide us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So it's a super short text. I am. Um, grappling with like how much do we cover or not cover um, considered stretching it out but then I realized you know what nobody's ever complained about a message being a little bit shorter <laughs> but there's no promise in that so don't take that uh, and I opted to, to look at these two verses mainly because as I studied John, these two verses seem to be sort of a, a summary statement of the first eight chapters of Mark. If you were to read through Mark, you would see that Mark is, is broadly divided into, into two parts. Um, the first part is Jesus' ministry in the, the Galilee region. And then at the end of chapter 8, about verse 31, the last section there, Jesus begins shifting his message. He begins telling the disciples that, um, that he must go to Jerusalem to be executed, that he must give his life as a ransom for many. Um, following that, going into chapter 9, we see that he takes a, a three of the disciples and the, um, the transfiguration happens and they begin to make their journey uh, to Jerusalem, kind of focusing on the cross. And so when we look at the first eight chapters of, of Mark, Verses 14 and 15 are sort of the, the summary statement that describe everything that happens uh, within this section. Um, we, we encounter some of the fundamentals of the faith, the sort of the, the, the meat and potatoes or the, the jugular vein of what Christianity is all about, uh, namely the gospel. And so we read here in verses 14 and 50, I've, 15, I've already read it, but, but now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And if you look at that and you hold that in your minds as we go through the eight chapters, you'll see that you can pretty much filter what's happening in the various stories through that lens. We start with John the Baptist. John doesn't say, or Mark doesn't say a whole lot about John in this section. Um, we read, 
that John had just been taken into custody. And my mind is like, oh, where's more of the story? Can we get more of the story? That's a fascinating story. And I, I grappled with, do I pull from the other Gospels and from Mark to kind of share the story now? And the more I sort of prayed and examined the text, I'm like, well, Mark's going to talk about John the Baptist in chapter 6. And so I've opted to allow to, the story to unfold as, as Mark has unfolded it to us. And I think that there's a reason that he doesn't tell a lot of the story here um, because he wants to get one point across to us that John the Baptist had this ministry, that he was a forerunner of Christ, that his message was to sort of uh, to prepare, prepare the, the spiritual hearts and minds of Israel to receive um, their king. And, and he says that I must decrease and he must increase, and he is going to have to step off the pages of, of the Bible so that Jesus' ministry can begin. And within Mark's section... It's almost like John and Jesus are, are running a track race and John has the baton and as soon as he's taken into custody, the baton is passed on to Jesus and John steps out of, off, you know, whatever the actors say, the step off stage right or whatever, you know, the exit stage right, he's done. I'm not an actor, so I'm going to kind of move along. Um, he's finished. His, his ministry is effectively done and Jesus theologically takes over uh, the work that God is doing. Um, <clears throat> theologically, I heard a question. It, the, the message of John was a repentance. It was a good question. I don't mind questions. And I often have too many files open up in my brain. <clears throat> so, so the message of John is repentance. He's preparing the way. Suddenly Jesus comes. The king is here. And, and now we have a king. Theologically, there's a shift um, they tie together. It's not like a huge theological shift. Um, but there's a divide in the sand. And we see a difference, a distinction in verse 14. As you begin to read Mark, and I hope you're reading through Mark, you'll notice certain words. I've pointed out the word immediately happens quite a bit in Mark. That's one of his key words. Another word he uses is and. There's nothing really spectacular about the word and. Um, but he uses it a ton to begin his sentences Already up to this point, in verse 5, we see, and all the country of Judea, verse 7, and he was preaching and saying, verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, verse 17, which we'll get to, and Jesus said to them, this is a word that he uses to begin his sentences all the time. He also uses the word immediately, which we've seen two times in verse 10 and verse 12. And almost all commentators point out like, hey, it's kind of interesting that Mark, when he begins verse 14, he uses this phrase, now after. And the, the point that they believe that's happening is that Mark is showing that there's some chronological divide. We don't know how much time has elapsed. John is doing his thing. Jesus was baptized by John. He then went through the temptation. And in this chronological window, eventually... John is taken into captivity, or taken into captivity, taken into under arrest, and then beheaded, which we'll see in verse or chapter six. And at that point, then Jesus makes his way um, from Judea. He was in the wilderness up to the Galilee region, which is the sort of the northern uh, circle. Um, I knew my notes would be no good today because there's like just a lot in here about these two verses. Um, we see that John is taken into custody. It's been pointed out that not only is John a forerunner of Christ, but he almost is a, he carries the likeness. His fate was very similar to Jesus's. Um, the pillar commentary notice, notes this. The baptizer is the forerunner of Christ, not only in his message, but also in his fate, which includes suffering and death. It really is a beautiful story. In chapter 6, Mark is going to expand on John's story. It's not going to be in real time. It's going to refer back to this situation. Um, in chapter 6, John or Jesus is going to send out the disciples two by two. And while they're doing their thing, Herod, who had already executed John, and a number of people are starting to freak out because they think, didn't we kill him? And they think that John the Baptist has come back to life. 
And so in that moment, Mark expands the story about John the Baptist, but we'll, we'll get there later. Um, so we see that Jesus came into Galilee. I showed you the map up there. And um, this marks the geographical divide within the Gospel of Mark from chapters 1 through um, chapter 8. And we see that Jesus' ministry is sort of identified in the content. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching, which is the word for the, that would describe a, a herald proclaiming a message. Um, I think of a town crier. I, I don't follow the royal family that much, but I do remember when one of them had the baby. I saw the, the image of the guy in the red jacket sort of on the street corner, just standing there screaming out to the world that whoever she was, like queen or princess or somebody, had a baby. <laughs> like, I'm sorry for the people I'm offending that followed the royal family. But the, the image of the town crier that's like, man, this is like 2016, and there's still in Britain a guy standing on the corner just screaming to the streets that they had had their baby. And that's sort of what this word uh, preaching is describes it's it's a it's a herald of sorts um, and what he's describing we're told that he's describing the gospel of god and so it's the good news that source is from god um, and the question that i keep asking myself or as i look at the story so it's the beginning of jesus's ministry we're told that as Jesus is, is uh, ministering within the Sea of Galilee in the region of Galilee, that what he's proclaiming is the good news of God, the gospel. And so when we read this, what do we think of? We, we think of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, uh, where he clearly defines the gospel in this way. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel defined by the New Testament. When we see the word gospel, that's what we define it as, or you should define it as. But as Jesus going around, were, they, were, the, re, were the people that were living with Jesus and seeing Jesus' ministry, were, when, is that how they would explain what Jesus was doing? Um, it turns out I learned a new literary device this, this week in this study. And what Mark is doing, he's using this uh, literary device that's called dramatic irony. And it's intentional that as they're writing, they're writing in a way that they know that their readers have more information available to them about the story than the actual people in the story. And so he, from the very beginning, when Mark writes, Jesus has already died, he's already been buried, he's always re already risen from the dead, the, the church has already been started on, at Pentecost. And so he's telling the story about Jesus, and the people that are in the story don't necessarily have the bigger picture. But Mark realizes that he has the whole story. The people that he's writing to know the story. In fact, in verse 1, he says, this is this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He identifies that Jesus is the gospel, that, that his whole incarnation, his coming to earth, being born, living the perfect life, uh, dying under Pontius Pilate, th this is the gospel. This is the good news that the Savior would step down from heaven for us. And he was on a mission to deliver this good news. Um, verse 15 and saying the time is fulfilled. In the Greek, there are two different words for time. They're important words. One is chronos, which can you guys guess what that word means? It means time. <laughs> you think of a clock, you think of the uh, the, you know, the, those of us that go back to the clocks that spin around this way, or is it this way for you guys? I don't know if it's a... Um, but but it's, it's, it's the unfolding of time, second by second, minute by minute. Um, I know that I have so much time available to me to, to share right now, to be respectful of your schedules. Um, then there's another word, kairos, which 
is where we get the word like chiropractic from. And it deals with um, more of an opportune time that, that things in that moment present themselves in a way that in other times they wouldn't present themselves. In my mind for the word kairos, I kind of, I kind of have an, a, a, like an imaginary river flowing through and there's stuff going down the river and you have the opportunity when things go by you to snatch them out of the river. And if you miss them, then you'll miss them. Maybe for fishermen up in Alaska when the salmon start to run, they know that, hey, there's an opportunity, there's a window. And if we don't go up there now, we're not going to get the fish because we're going to miss the run. Um, not that I've been to Alaska, but I've watched a lot of Alaska, the last frontier. So I, 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 you can stay warmer watching it and learning about it. <laughs> so it's like there's, there's, these, there's these opportunities. And so when the gospel presents itself in this way, and Jesus is telling them the time has been fulfilled, it's, it's no accident when you think about the timing that Jesus entered human history. Um, there's so many prophecies as we've looked at Daniel and Revelation concerning Jesus that you, you just can't fake, you can't make up. You, uh, he, he entered the world scene in a way that all of the prophecies came to fall on him with, with certainty. Outside of that, the, the timing of his coming, it, it was a time in history when the gospel, the good news could spread around the world faster than any time in the world up to that point. Um, the, the Romans had conquered the world. They developed their Roman roads that essentially for them put freeways that could extend the whole reaches of, of, of the empire. Uh, then you have Alexander the Great who conquered the world and in his conquering, he, he required that all people speak Koine Greek which is the language of the New Testament. And so Jesus comes on scene where the events that happen about him could be written down in a way that the world could know about it and the roads were there, the infrastructure, that it could be disseminated to everybody. It's fascinating, the timing of everything. Um, we do live in a time now where information is, you, something can happen here and around the world. You can find out about, about it in seconds. I don't know that it means anything or anything's connected to that, but, but we live in, in a like time where information is able to, to, to get out in, in speeds that have never, ever been able to happen up to this point. And so we're told that the time has been fulfilled. Um, Genesis 3.15, this promise of a Messiah would come. The nation of Israel, the people of the world have, have within them been longing for a Messiah to redeem them from their sinful nature, to redeem them from the conditions of the world. Jesus enters the scene and he says, the time has been fulfilled. Things are about to start happening. And we're told, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, I've been grappling with how much of this, how, how deep to go into. We spent the last year going through Revelation and Daniel. You guys might be the kingdom of God out <laughs> of, of some of the images and things that we read about in the last year. But I think this is an ex, in, in a, a terribly important phrase to study, uh, to try to wrap your minds around within this short gospel of Mark that only has 16 chapters, this phrase occurs 13 times. And Jesus who came to the Jews in particular, um, they were expecting a Messiah. Um, they were expecting God's kingdom to come. Now they might have missed some of the things um, that happened because of the image and the thinking that they had in their mind, but we shouldn't be quick to blame them for their thinking because if you read through the Old Testament, many of these same images are still there. 
And I believe that they're just yet to be fulfilled. If we were to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 7, we're not going to go there, but a place for you to study is in verses 12 through 15. It's what's known as the Davidic covenant, that this promise was made that a, that a, a king would come through the Davidic line that would establish this eternal throne. And so they had this idea that a king would come and would do away with the nations and, and would reign eternally. Um, we looked at the scenes from Daniel's, Daniel chapter 7 and 9, these, these visions that Daniel had of the son before the father and these great promises that would unfold. Um, we, we see Jesus. I see, this is where I get where, which order to go in. If we were to fast forward through Mark, we'd come to chapter 15, verse 2. Jesus on trial for his life. Um, he's not really speaking to Pilate. Pilate looks at him, and, and Pilate's trying to help him. He's like, don't you know who I am? And Jesus, I just, don't you know who I am? <laughs> he didn't say it. He was not as, uh, well, let's not, he wasn't human. <laughs> I mean, he, was, he wasn't like us. Um, it was a very humble authority. And so he's standing there before Pilate, beaten, bruised. And at one point, Pilate says, uh, to the king of the Jews. And Jesus looks at him and he says, that it's, it's, it's as you say, you said it. I am the king of the Jews. He acknowledges that he is the king of God's kingdom and that he's on scene now. We, we see before this the great Olivet Discourse where Jesus in Matthew 24 with his disciples is, is describing this coming kingdom and the things that must unfold leading up to this. Um, to after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and then he rises from the dead, and then he encounters his disciples, or if we go to, to Acts chapter 1, and they're still asking the question, is this the time for your kingdom to be established? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know. He doesn't say you're wrong in asking the question. We're quick to jump on them to say, oh, they keep asking the question. No, he, these guys walked with Jesus for three years. If anybody had a clue of what Jesus was doing, it was these guys. And they asked the question, and Jesus says, it's not for you guys to know the time. Here are the things that will lead up to this. And then before their eyes, he goes up to heaven. And it's one of my more, it's one of the scenes that I find super funny in the Bible. They're staring up, they're trying to process Jesus floating up like a balloon into the sky until he's basically taken out of vision through clouds. And it's like, what do we do now? Like, did that just happen? And then all of a sudden the angel shows up and is like, hey, what are you guys looking at? <laughs> Well, we have some questions. And the angel basically says, get, on, get along with your business because what you just saw, he's going to return in that way. And it's easy to dismiss this going, oh, this isn't literal. This isn't. If you'll turn with me a couple, just a couple books before Matthew, you'll help Malachi or Malici as Larry says it, the Italian. And then you'll hit Zechariah. And at the very end of Zechariah, there's this, there's this image. And for those of you that will be in Israel in three weeks, we'll read this passage on the Mount of Olives, looking to the Dome of the Rock. And this is what Zechariah says. It says, in that day, verse 4, sorry if you're not keeping up with my thoughts. Zechariah chapter 14, the very end, Zechariah 14 Verse 4, this is the image that the disciples had. This is the image that the Jews, as they were expecting the Messiah to come and overthrow Rome. It didn't unfold in the timing that they thought, but it doesn't mean that these passages are voided. And so just to help your minds, if you can imagine the picture of the golden dome that's so often in pictures when you look at Jerusalem, and if you were to back up to the east, you would be on um, the Mount of Olives. And going down the slope of the Mount of Olives towards the temple, 
you would get to the bottom, and the Kedron Valley runs between uh, the Mount of Olives and the, the Dome of the Rock, uh, the Temple Mount. And then going up the hill, you hit the East Gate that the Muslims over the years who have taken control of the temple, they have, they have walled up that entrance, and they have buried uh, people all alongside the East Gate, in large part due to this passage. Because the ground is now unclean, and so no Messiah could walk over the graveyard. But this is the image that they have in their mind. In that day, his feet will stand on Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from two, east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half will move towards the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day. That's an understatement. Which is known by the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Geologists already know that there's enough water underneath the city of David to, to create this sort of river to flow. <clears throat> will flow out of Jerusalem, verse 8, half of them towards the east, the eastern sea, and the other half towards the western sea. It will be summer as well as in the winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will will be the only one, and his name the only one. And so the, the picture is on, on this great mountain with all the tombs that are there blocking the east gate. The Lord's going to descend. This mighty earthquake's going to happen. It's going to split the earth. And so there's a direct path straight into the temple. River, water's going to bubble up from underneath the city of David and flow out. This, this is, I mean, it's terrifying. This, this, just for the record, this hasn't happened yet. There's this, we're still looking forward. This is the image that every Jew would have. And the disciples, as they're asking Jesus, is this the time for the kingdom? Is this the time for the kingdom? And Jesus says, you don't know the hour. Don't worry. The angels, oh, it's going to happen just as it comes. And if it happens, where he descends with his feet on the ground, earthquake. When we look at the book of Revelation, as we just studied, you guys can go back to Mark. The very last few chapters from Christ's return, where he reigns for a thousand years during the millennium, to the coming of the new heavens and the new earth, there's an awesome God out there. He's revealed the things that he's going to do They've been prophesied from long ago. But the king doesn't come as we would. I don't know if it's how we would desire him to come, as we expected him to come. Nobody saw Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. It was a very hindsight chapter, like, ah, uh aha. Many that said Isaiah 53 wasn't true, was added in after Christ's life. And this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls are so critical when they discover, discover the Dead Sea Scrolls and they found the book of Isaiah from many years before Christ that the purity of Isaiah is, is or it, it, the discovery there shows that the Isaiah we have is pure. That it wasn't added in after Christ. It was there before Christ. And so why am I sharing all of this? Verse 15, so we see Jesus has entered the Galilee. John the Baptist is off scene. Jesus is beginning his ministry. We, we see the, uh, in this summary statement, Jesus' ministry is described as proclaiming the gospel or the good news that's from God. Saying that the time has been fulfilled 
and the kingdom of God is at hand. Which begs the question, what does at hand mean? The disciples took the Old Testament, which they knew it was ingrained into them. They knew Zechariah. They knew these stories of the coming king and his kingdom. And they were so under the impression of Rome. And the Jewish people had been so persecuted over the years. They, they were longing for this to be thrown off. For their king to come and to reign and to rule over them. Uh, the, the image of, of Palm Sunday that we celebrate the week before Christ was crucified as they're waving palm branches, this was the national symbol of Israel. It would be the equivalent of Americans waving flags on the 4th of July. They wanted their king to come in power and might as they were expecting from the Old Testament. And so here Jesus is announcing to them that the kingdom is at hand because the king is at hand. So Jesus is ushering in the kingdom, which is here, but not all the way yet. Uh, Baker commentary describes it in this way. The reign of God has come in Jesus' coming. The Spirit is coming soon from the perspective of the Gospels at Pentecost upon all believers. Yet the ultimate consumption of all things awaits for the return of the Son of Man, like we read in Revelation and Daniel, so that the believers continue to pray, Your kingdom come. Thus the kingdom of God is both already but not yet. And so I sort of view this. There's sort of like an open enrollment for heaven. It's a terrible analogy. <laughs> I heard Rick laugh as he sells in, does insurance for open enrollment. And, and I, I've been desperately trying to think of something to highlight this. And I only can think of bad ones. I, I ride my bike to church, and, and when you go down Valley Center Road where the, um, the dairy farm used to be, you see a sign. And, and there's a housing development there, right? And I haven't looked at buying a house there, but I'm pretty sure that if you went to the developer, you could give them some money and you could buy a house, and you could become a property owner of a new house that's yet to come that will be there. And I don't want to get too divisive. I have no idea. <laughs> when the new houses will come. So you could be a homeowner of a house that doesn't yet exist. Um, it's kind of like that for us. Our king has come. And for those of us who have surrendered our lives to Christ, who have received him as king, who um, have been born again and are now followers of Christ, the Bible makes it really clear that our citizenship is now in this this heavenly kingdom, but we remain here sort of um, away from our home. If you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, you see it all through the epistles. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 is really clear. This is, you know, Paul is writing from prison to this church in Philippi who he loved dearly. These are dear saints. Um, they're concerned about Paul, so he's writing this thank you letter to them for their gift. <laughs> when they gave their gift, they found out that their pastor, Epaphroditus, had, had almost died. Their founding pastor, Paul, is under arrest. They have no idea his fate. All they're seeing is persecution and trials for following Jesus. And so when Paul writes them back in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he writes to them, for our citizenship is in heaven. So if you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Christ, you're a dual citizen. You, you have two passports, or, or maybe more. I, we have missionaries that we support that some of the kids are like, they have three passports. But most of us just have one passport. And he says, you have a passport for heaven from which also, we eagerly wait, sort of 
we're separated from this kingdom. We're separated from our king in part. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state. So as followers of Christ, we're citizens of heaven. The body we live in now has sort of two natures if you're a Christian. You have your depraved nature and then you have the Holy Spirit within you. So you have roommates within you that are at war with one another. It's a really uncomfortable situation. Um, If you're a Christian, you should know the tension of like how powerful your flesh is and you have to have the Spirit of God within you convicting you. And so it's like this tug of war and we're trying to feed the Spirit in our lives. But it's a hard battle. And so the believer longs for this day when this body will be transformed of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory that we're going to have bodies that are transformed by Christ that are free of sin. They're free of the flesh of the pool by the exertion of power that he has given to subject all things to himself. It's the Bible. That's good. <laughs> um, Verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, in light of this, in light that we're separated from our king, in light that we're separated from our ki- the kingdom at hand, my, bre- my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So he says, we're separated from our king. We're separated from the kingdom. It's coming. Keep your eyes on that day. One day he will return. He'll usher in his kingdom. And we'll be able to live in the way that he's called us to live. It reminds me of my time in the military. Anytime I would land in foreign soil before we were allowed to, to leave uh, whatever situation we were in where we were surrounded by Americans and we had to step foot in another country or soil, we would be briefed. The lawyers would come in. Um, the people who have studied the culture and context would give us briefings on how to dress, how to behave. And they would always say, remember that you're an ambassador for the United States. You represent the United States even though you're nowhere near your mother's soil. So when you're out walking into whatever country, recognize that for the per- people that you encounter, you are the United States of America. And Christian, the same thing is on us. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the very end of it, that says we've been called as ambassadors, that we're, we're here as aliens. I think of um, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 and 7, this, this most powerful sermon that's ever been preached in the, in the history of mankind when Jesus begins to lay out these principles of the kingdom that we as his followers we desire to adhere, we desire um, to, to live out in our day-to-day lives. But these principles are foreign to this land that we live in. So there's going to be resistance, there's going to be persecution, there's going to be pressing back. And so back to Mark. I know I'm dissecting this, these two verses. Verse 14, now after John had been taken into custody... Jesus came into Galilee. He begins his earthly ministry. He's proclaiming the good news of God or the gospel of God, which we understand is is the life and work of Jesus on earth that culminated at the cross where the wrath of God was placed on him for the sins of the world. That he was buried and on the third day he rose from the grave. And he conquered death. This is his message. And so we see that he was saying in verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Baker commentary said something that made me laugh this week. Uh, Repent is the appropriate response to the eschatological 
crisis created by the fulfillment of time. (laughs) The king is on scene. The light has been exposed to darkness. Your sin is revealed for what it is. You see the holiness of God for what he is in Christ, that Jesus, according to the first chapter of John, says that he exegetes the Father. So if you want to see God, look at Jesus. And when you look at God, it's light. Light exposes the darkness within you. And you have problems. I have problems. It's concerning. And so we see here that Jesus says to repent and to believe. What do we do with the word repent? It's, it's a word metanoia. It's, it's the idea of a, of a decision that happens in your mind. We're not talking about f- outward actions. Um, it's, it's a compound word meaning to change one mind, change, change one's mind or to alter one's understanding. You're confronted with a new reality that God reveals to you. Um, I do think that metanoia, the change of one's mind, leads to fruit in one's life. Um, it can be a painful road. This isn't about, oh, rut, rut row, I got caught and now I'm going to confess. This is encountering God, recognizing that there's holiness, realizing that the whole way you've been living your life has been a total mess and you've been going against God and deep within you, you're convicted that the way you've been living is wrong. Early in my Christian life, this was a painful, painful thing. I would go out. I would try to, try to live in my flesh. I would kind of agree with the things in the Bible. I was trying to read the Bible. I wasn't arguing with the Bible anymore. I was in church. But when I was away from church, I was with all my buddies, drinking, doing things that were not Christ-like. And it really came to this, this, the peak. And I don't remember the circumstances, but I remember desperately feeling like a failure that I couldn't make what the Bible said happen in my life. And I was in my cage at SEAL Team 3, which a cage is, it's, it's like, I opened up. It's like, you kind of get a room for all your stuff that's a cage. And I was there, just kind of broken before God. And I remember saying, like, I want all of this stuff. I have no clue how to make it happen. I, I can't go on living like this because I'm a total hypocrite. I'm going to church on Sundays. I'm going to Bible studies on Tuesdays. But Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I can't make this happen. And so I got to stop saying I'm a Christian because it's not working out. And it seemed like in that moment of repentance, there was this brokenness within me that God then used. And so I'm not, I don't think that repentance, that certainly there are people who get stopped in their tracks like that. I'm kind of jealous of those people. Because for me, it was like a five-year U-turn or something. I mean, it seemed like forever. Um. A few years ago at Bible study, Don gave this illustration that I thought was beautiful. Uh, he, he described it as like being on the freeway and that repentance is deciding that you're on the wrong road and you need to get off. And, and some people, or you've been cases in your life on the road, you're on the freeway and you're like, ah, I missed my turn. It's like, oh, there's an exit right here like 100 yards later and you can poop, get off the road, get, your, get everything back on track and get going the right direction. But my life of repentance was, is kind of like when you have those moments where you're like, you're somewhere where you don't know and the roads are way more open and you miss your turn. It's like next exit, 15 miles down the road. <laughs> and so you're stuck on the road going, I need to be going this way. And I'll see stuff like, well, I think I could probably flip a U-turn through the freeway right there. It looks like, please do that. Like probably, you know, it's like, no, 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 I shouldn't do that. And you kind of get going. So I think this idea of repentance, for some of us, see, Satan and our flesh are powerful, and they've had their grips in us for a long time. And I think the key to repentance is saying, you know what? God's right, and I'm wrong, and I need to get right with God. Um, 
And Jesus says, believe. But both of these are, for those of you who are nerds, I say that with all respect, both repent and believe are present active indicative, meaning that it's an ongoing thing. That you, these aren't elementary principles that you grow out of. But it says believe. It, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't say that Jesus was speaking about the kingdom of God is at hand, that you should repent and that you believe and you should start tucking in your shirt, combing in your hair, brushing your teeth. Well, brush your teeth, that's good. Um, uh, like all of these Christian things, n- nothing is added. Believe. It's so simple. But we make it so complicated because it, the, the economics of it don't work. Like nothing free is worth having, right? Like it's, it's, it costs a great deal and it's a worthy gift. There's been no expectation placed on you to do to get right with God. It's simply to believe. Um, Charles Swindoll says this, which I thought was really quite good. Sinners only have the capacity to trust in Jesus as Savior. If you're apart from Christ, you don't have the capacity to do anything to get right with God. The only capacity you have is to respond to the gospel that's been presented, that Jesus took your wrath. He stood in your place. And you can reject it, that's your default, or you can respond to it. A Bible scholar by the name of uh, N.T. Wright, he told an analogy that I want to read about an alarm clock. Uh, He says, and salvation, he says, waking up offers one of the most basic pictures of what can happen when God takes a hand in someone's life. There are classic alarm clock stories Uh, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, blinded by a a sudden light, stunned and speechless, discovered that the God he had worshipped had revealed himself in the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth. John Wesley found his heart became strangely warm, and he never looked back. They and a few others are the famous ones, but there are millions more. And there are many stories though they do not hit the headlines in the same way, of the half-awake and half-asleep variety. Some people take months, years, maybe even decades, during which they aren't sure whether they're on the outside of the Christian faith looking in or on the inside looking around to see if it's real. As with ordinary waking up, there are many people who are somewhere in between. But the point is, there is a such thing as being asleep and there's a such thing as being awake. And it's important to tell the difference and to be sure you're awake by the time you have to be up and ready for action, whatever action may be. I took years ignoring the clock, hitting snooze, um, outright just bashing the alarm clock like in Groundhog's Day, the movie where you know, Bill Murray is just chucking the, the alarm clock to make it stop. The question is, what about you? What have you done with Jesus? This is critical. Some of us are just in open rebellion living our lives, investigating. Some of us have been raised in the church and you know how to put on the the exterior and fool everybody, but inside that clock has been smashed. You can fool us, but you can't fool God. And and so Mark's message, he wants to share the good news, the reality of what Christ has has come to do and to say and and, and to to reveal to us, to authenticate. We'll see these miracles, which miracles are, are not called, they're not normals, they're miracles. They're like out of the ordinary. During Jesus's life and much of the first eight chapters, there's a bunch of these miracles of things that Jesus does, but it's never about the miracle. The miracle is always to authenticate who Jesus is and to authenticate his claims. 
And so as we go through Mark, we're going to be confronted with have you believed in him for salvation? Now, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't end there. There's, there's a great cost in following Christ, but that has nothing to do with salvation. It happens to responding to the gift that's been given to you. So my prayer is that each one here would truly recognize what Jesus has done for you and that you would wrestle through the implications of of the claims of Christ, the the claims of the New Testament, because he's worthy. We're unworthy, and yet he chose to die for us. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we are grateful for the word which you have uh, provided for us. We thank you for the many men and women over the centuries who have given their all to preserve and to protect, to translate, to, to make available the Holy Scriptures to us. We have this word in our hands that you have breathed out for us to have, to read, to understand, to know. We are grateful for the many that have made sacrifices to, to make that possible. This message tells about Christ, his holiness, his perfection, his sacrifice that was for us. Father, we thank you that you made a way that we could get right with you. Father, I pray for each person here, um, for those that don't know you, uh, Lord, that you would make the gospel clear, that you would uh, show them that it's a gift, that salvation comes by believing. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation, we pray that you would help us never to lose sight of the beauty of the gospel, the the beauty of grace, that it was a gift. Father, we pray that as we give our lives to you, um, as you call us to abandon all to follow after you, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to never get the cart in front of the horse, so to speak, that our works in response to what you've done for us, not to earn favor with you. Lord, we are grateful for this love that you've poured out and made available to us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us uh, to honor you with our lives. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.